0: And you can take your Bibles and turn them with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 11, John 11. The mission of Harbin's church is to make mature and mobilize disciples for the salvation and joy of the nations and for the glory of Christ but no matter how many strategies we have, no matter how many ministries we do, uh, no matter how many programs we run as a church body, we will never be faithful in our mission to make mature and mobilized disciples if we if we lose sight of what discipleship actually is and what a disciple actually looks like. And in our sermon text today, we actually find ourselves confronted with a story that surprisingly teaches us a lot about discipleship, a scripture that we don't normally look at uh, when we think about what a disciple looks like, and it's in John chapter 12. But to set the stage, we need to go back to John 11, where last week we looked at the greatest miracle of Jesus thus far in the gospel of John, where Jesus resurrected Lazarus. He raised him from the dead. And uh, and what was the response to that miracle? Or if you if if you're in chapter 11, you can look at verse 45 and you can see one of the responses says many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. That's wonderful. But as you keep reading, you see dark storm clouds brewing on the horizon. Verse 46. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. You see, the religious leaders were given a measure of autonomy and freedom from the Roman government to, uh, uh, to govern their own people to have authority over the Jews. And part of the expectation that the Romans had was that they the, these authorities would help to keep the peace, uh, to keep the Jews under control. and And now these religious leaders see their own power and their own existence as a nation dangling by a thread. Many, many people now are going over to Jesus, and that could prove to be very dangerous. Because if a revolt happens... The Jewish ruling council, uh, which is also known as the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin, they know uh, that the Romans are going to respond to a revolt. And and they're going to unleash the full force of Roman military might on Israel. And Jerusalem and the temple will be ground zero and will be leveled. And at best, the Sanhedrin will lose their power and their prominence. And at worst, they will be among the first people to be rounded up and executed as traitors. And the nation will be obliterated. So the Jewish leaders see things spinning out of control. And they recognize that the time has come to stop this before things get even further out of hand. And so then you go down to verse 49. But one of them, them again being the Jewish religious authorities here, one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, uh, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. In other words, Caiaphas is saying, you know what, folks, there's a solution to save the nation, and that solution is that Jesus has to be killed. He's got to go. It's either him or it's us. So then look down at verse 53. It says, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death, And so that's the context of our story today. The shadow of death is growing darker and darker over Jesus life. And yet, in the midst of the shadow, we're going to see a glimpse of something that's very beautiful and something that teaches us about the nature of discipleship. And so with that said, turn over now to chapter 12. And please stand with me as we read this passage. Now, again, setting the stage here, Jesus is in Bethany. That's about two miles outside of Jerusalem, and a celebration dinner is underway. It's probably in honor of, of Jesus, and it's in celebration of Lazarus' healing. So Lazarus is there. His sisters are there, Mary and Martha, and Jesus' disciples are there as well. And in the middle of an ordinary meal, an extraordinary thing happens. So let's look at this together. It's John chapter 12. We're going to start at verse 1. And read on down through verse 8. God's Word says, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for uh, 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money back, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your holy and inspired word. Father, help us to uh, hear what your spirit has to say to us this morning through your word. Help us to believe it. Help us to honor it. Help us to obey it. And, Father, may your Son be glorified in the preaching and in the hearing of your Word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. When you look back at all the various gifts that you've received in your life, Christmas time, of course, we we just had Christmas, or birthdays, or anniversaries, the, the gifts that have meant the most to you are probably the gifts that are the most personal and the most sacrificial. The more sacrificial the gift of the giver, the greater the expression of love that is towards the givee. And in our text today, we see an extraordinary gift given to Jesus by his friend Mary that Jesus' promises will be remembered through the ages. Another gospel, he says that wherever the gospel goes, that the story is going to be told. People are going to remember what has happened here. And, and, and this event is the occasion of some interesting responses. Uh, we, see, uh, we see three reactions from three different people that will reveal to us three things about the nature of discipleship. And the first thing that we see in our uh, text this morning is that Mary anoints, Mary anoints. Look again at verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had rose from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So Mary comes to Jesus with this expensive ointment. Uh, In verse 5, Judas calculates the worth of this to be 300 denarii. That's a lot of money. A denarii is one day's wages. This is 300 denarii. This would have been a lot of money, roughly a year's wages. Now, if that seems hard to believe, that a pound of perfume would be worth that much, we should realize that even today, certain fragrances, certain perfume concoctions can really fetch a high price on the market. And so husbands, if you wanted to do something nice for your wife, if you want to go all out, Valentine's Day is coming up. We're just a few weeks away from that. This can be your big moment. To show her how much you love and adore her by giving her a special gift. I can give you some high quality, high end perfumes that you could get. It might be a little bit on the pricey side. So you may want to start saving the next couple of paychecks. Or all of your paychecks. But she's worth it, right? So, so how about buying your sweetheart a bottle of Anik Goutal Eau de Harajon. I guarantee you that I botched the pronunciation of that. These crazy French names. Uh, that's actually on the lower end of the world's priciest perfumes. Available for just $441.18 per ounce. Per ounce. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, you know what? I really love my wife. And I want to go all out. I don't want to know that cheap stuff. That that gout that, all, whatever that was. Uh, money is no object. My wife deserves the very best well if you really want to go all out husbands then you need to get her clive christian number one imperial majesty perfume that even sounds expensive doesn't it twelve thousand seven hundred twenty one dollars and 89 cents per ounce there you go you got your valentine's day gift so start saving For thousands of years, thousands of years, there have been certain fragrances fragrances that are extremely costly. Uh, And Mary is in possession of such a mixture. Uh, She's either wealthy or or this is a family heirloom that's been passed down. And Mary comes to this dinner with this incredibly costly ornament uh, worth tens of thousands of dollars. And she takes this bottle. Now, if you go over to Mark's parallel account, and Mark's gospel tells us that this this ointment was in a a fragile alabaster jar, and she, she breaks it, she opens it up by breaking it, and she pours it all out on Jesus, every last drop on Jesus. Matthew's gospel tells us in chapter 26 that Mary poured the perfume onto Jesus' head John here tells us that the perfume is going on to his feet. So it's, it's going all over Jesus, and she's got to wipe the excess with her hair. Uh, verse 3 says that that fragrance of the perfume filled the whole house. That wouldn't be the case if she just dabbed a little bit, you know, on the, on, on the wrist of, of, of Christ, on just, uh, just a part of him. She's using all of this perfume. She's holding nothing back. And, and we also can know that she used it all because Judas is freaking out. Because he's seeing tens of thousands of dollars going down the drain. Really, there's more going on here. Uh, The the monetary value of this ointment was not the ultimate cost for Mary in all of this. Not not when you consider what the purpose of this perfume would have been. Uh, Something like this in in that day and age was in her possession really for, for probably for two main purposes. It could have been used... As a dowry on the occasion of her wedding or as far as the practical use of this fragrance is concerned, it would have been saved and used on herself on the occasion of her death. uh, On her corpse, when her body was being prepared for burial, Uh, there were uh, these were the types of ointments that that were used to 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 mask the process of decomposition in regards to, to that smell. As Mary poured out that ointment on Jesus, she was, in a very real sense, pouring out her future on him. She was pouring out and surrendering her own plans, her own desires, her own aspirations. She's surrendering her own security. You you think about how much an expensive item like this would have come in handy uh, for Mary if something went wrong. If hard times hit, she could sell that perfume, live off the proceeds of that for a year. But she calculated the value of this ointment, probably her most valuable possession. She calculated the value of Jesus. And when she weighed the two treasures, it turned out to be a no-brainer. She knew that what she possessed was worth a year's wages. But in the presence of a superior treasure... And with the opportunity to honor and enjoy that treasure to a greater degree, she happily gives the lesser treasure away, pouring it all out onto the body of Jesus to honor and glorify Jesus. This is an act of incredible worship and love and devotion. And in Mary, we see an example of how true discipleship treasures Jesus above all things. And and this is not just about money. Mary is abandoning herself in her worship and, and, and exaltation of Christ in her life, even to the point of doing, doing things that those around her and those in the culture would disapprove of. They, they would frown upon it. Uh, they would despise it even. She anoints Jesus' feet to touch another person's feet in that first century Jewish culture was considered especially low and demeaning. In fact, not even a slave could be compelled to touch the feet of another and here's mary in a posture that's lower than a slave before jesus uh, she regards herself as unworthy to even be a servant she unbinds her hair which was socially unacceptable and she wipes that excess perfume with it she's breaking all kinds of social rules of the day anyone watching would have been shocked by this display but Mary isn't doing this simply to, to get attention or to be sensationalistic. She doesn't care about what other people think. And that's the point. She, she's giving up any other thing she might cling to for her sense of purpose and identity that's outside of Christ. The cultural taboos. What other people think. None of these things matter to Mary in that moment. Why? Why? Because she is turning away from those things as a source of her identity. Christ is more important than the culture. Christ is more important than the approval of others. Christ is more important than money. Christ and worshipping him and serving him is treasured above all of those things. That's the kind of mindset and lifestyle that a disciple of Christ is to grow into. How many times have you or I allowed the fear of the opinions of others and the cravings of the approval of man and the desire for security that money and possessions bring? How many times have such fears held us back from really going all out and exalting and honoring Jesus to the maximum with our very lives? This kind of fear affects everything from our evangelism, to our giving, to our pursuit of holiness. But Jesus says something interesting in Luke chapter 14, very interesting and challenging. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What does Jesus mean by saying that? What does he mean by, by hating your, your, your family? You're supposed to hate your family? So Jesus is not saying don't love your mom. That's not that's not the point there. In fact, elsewhere, Jesus says love your neighbor. Hating something, as Jesus uses it here, is a Jewish idiom, and it means love less, value less, treasure less. If anyone comes to me and treasures those other things more than they treasure me, if you love them more than you love me, you can't be my disciple. And so Jesus' point here is one of value and priority. So over here, I've got my money, I've got my family, I've got my reputation, I've got the approval of my friends and the approval of the culture and safety. I've got that on one side, and on the other side, I've got Jesus. And the question is, what am I loving more? What am I more committed to? What's the main priority of my life? What do I regard as the superior treasure? Well, Because where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And where your heart is at, what dominates your heart ultimately, where your heart finds safety and security and satisfaction and purpose and identity, that's your God. Now, a genuine disciple of Jesus is not somebody who is perfect in this area. Some of you might be sitting there and saying, I I really struggle with these things. Genuine disciples not perfect in this area. Nobody in this room lives that out perfectly 100% of the time, all the time. But if you are a genuine disciple of Jesus, the overall trajectory of your life will be a growing into this mindset of grasping and appreciating the value of Christ above all things more and more, and your actions will follow suit. And simultaneously, you're going to find yourself increasingly burdened and convicted and grieved in your soul when you don't treasure Jesus as much as you should. There's there's an increased willingness to surrender all. Surrender your goals, your dreams, your possessions, your future, your very life to Jesus. And Mary here shows us an example of what that kind of discipleship looks like. So Mary anoints. Judas condemns, Judas condemns the true discipleship of Mary is contrasted with the fake discipleship of Judas. Look at verse four. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, friends, on the surface, that reaction almost sounds reasonable, does it not? Forget for a moment that it came from Judas. And forget what the text tells you about Judas' heart. Nobody in that room except for Jesus knew Judas' heart. For all the other disciples know Judas is one of them, and he's every bit as sincere. This man has traveled with Jesus. He has sat under Jesus' teaching. He has done all kinds of good works. He has preached the gospel. He has cast out demons. He's healed people. Judas projected a pious, put-together, public personality— And yet his heart was cold towards Jesus, and he was an evil and self-centered man. Judas did not care one whit about poor people. Look at verse 6. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge in the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. So Judas did not care about the poor. He cared about his bank account. Judas looked really good on the outside. He looked like a disciple. He said holy kinds of things. Let's take care of the poor. But in his heart, he was as far away from being a true disciple as one can be. And the reason why is because he treasured something else more than he treasured Jesus. And here, specifically, he treasured money. The only reason he is hanging out with Jesus is because what he can get from Jesus. And for Judas... Jesus was a means to an end. Jesus was a way for him to easily get something that he wanted more than Jesus. And it's very interesting, if you read the account in Matthew 26, you learn that this event, with Mary pouring out that perfume, it seems to be the final thing that pushed Judas over the edge and, and, and drove him to betray Jesus the first chance he got after this incident. And what did Judas portray Jesus for? For money. 30 pieces of silver. This incident with Mary, I think, was the last straw for Judas. Judas had hung out with Jesus for as long as he could bear it. He had stolen as much money as he could. And when Mary pours tens of thousands of dollars down the drain, when Judas loses all that money, when he sees how little Jesus cares about money, combined with the fact that the authorities are now out to get Jesus, out to kill him, and by extension, all of them, Judas figures this is the time to ditch Jesus. I, I, I'll i stick around Jesus for for as long as I've got a shot to get what I want, but when I can't get what I want anymore, I'm out of here. You see, Judas does not treasure Jesus If Jesus can't give Judas what Judas treasures most, then what's the point? And churches all over the country are filled with people exactly like Judas. I have met and worshipped alongside people exactly like this. There are people in our churches today where they see Jesus merely as a means to an end. They may not articulate it that way, they, 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 they may not even fully understand what they're doing, what's going on in their heads, but that's what's going on. There are entire multi-million dollar ministries built on promoting Jesus as a means to whatever end you want. Come to Jesus and he will heal your body. Come to Jesus and he will fix your marriage. Come to Jesus and he will take care of your financial needs. Come to church and you will find a spouse. Or business contacts. Kids acting up in the home? Well, let's start going to church. let's, Let's put a little religion in their lives and let's bring some peace to our household. People all over the world treat Jesus like that. And you know what? They often can look very good on the outside, but they are false disciples. Now, I want to make this clear. Jesus can heal. Jesus can mend relationships. Jesus can do all kinds of wonderful things for us, and he can help us in so many ways, and he does. And he's done it in my life many, many, many times. And I know many of you in this room have testimonies about the same thing. It's good to ask Jesus for those kinds of things. But folks, I'm afraid that too often... We love what is on the master's table more than the master. And that's a characteristic of false disciples. Because when Jesus doesn't fix their marriage to their satisfaction, or when their cancer gets worse, or when they are still single after 10 years of going to church, or when they are bankrupt. And when they're seeing all these things fall apart, what happens? They do exactly what Judas did. They're out of there. Forget Jesus. I'm done. I'm done with him. I'm done with this. And they stab Jesus in the back and cut their losses and they're gone. And I've seen it happen many times in my life. And it's one of the biggest heartbreaks in my ministry. So many times I've seen people come. It seems like they're, 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 they're coming to Jesus and maybe they're coming to counseling for me about something. And there's something going on in, the, in their life and they're, and they're really struggling. And yes, yes, you want to turn to Jesus. You, and you recognize Jesus is the solution for the various issues in our life. And so I, and I welcome that when people come to me. And maybe they start coming to church for two weeks or four weeks or six weeks or a couple of months. And then they fall away. But things don't work out quite the way that they wanted them to. And you find out in the end what they really wanted. And what they really wanted was not Jesus. And it rips my heart to pieces. The Apostle John says in 1 John, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not Of us, John says, "Guys, they were among us. They were in our churches, but they never really were genuine Christians in the first place. Because if they were, they'd still be here." John knows so well of what he speaks because John personally knew the prototype of all future false disciples, Judas. And Judas's problem, and the problem of all people outside of Christ, is that they have a different value system. They are 180 degrees opposite. Of Mary. Despite their pious talk, they don't treasure Jesus above all things. The difference between Mary and Judas is that for Judas, Jesus was a means to an end. For Mary, Jesus was the end. Jesus was the treasure. It was all about Jesus and whatever it took for her to experience Jesus more, to love Jesus more, to enjoy Jesus more to glorify Jesus more, to honor him more. There was no cost, no sacrifice too great. Now, we got to be careful here. This is the point where we might fall into certain temptations. We all really want to cheer on Mary, and we all want to turn up our noses at Judas, as if we are awesome people. Who always get it right. My friends, let's be challenged here. Even we who are genuine disciples of Jesus go through times where in our hearts we have fleshly, selfish, sinful motives, but we we cloak those motives with an outward demeanor that seems pious, that seems holy, like, like what Judas did in this story, and we also sometimes find ourselves wanting to use Jesus for something we can get from Jesus that's more important to us in the moment than Jesus. We can do that all kinds of ways. Well, I signed up for that meal train and brought that needy couple in church a whole bunch of food. I went into their house and I, and I saw, boy, they, they already have stacks of food. They don't, they don't need the food that I'm, that I'm giving them. What's, what's going on there? Oh, and they they didn't even say thank you. Uh, I'm serving in the church and 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 I'm doing ministry and I'm giving my time and my energy and nobody's recognizing it. I'm I'm trying to serve God and and do the right thing and still my life's falling apart. And we need to ask ourselves in in that moment the question, why, why are we doing what we are doing? Are we are we going for the reward for the treasure of being thanked, of being recognized? Or is the reward in what we are doing? A greater experience of Jesus, a, a, a greater way to honor and love Jesus, a, a, a way to 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 bring joy to our own hearts because we are selflessly Loving and serving others. And so then when they are joyful. Then we are we are joyful. Our joy comes from, from them benefiting. From service. Or do we have. Other. Less noble reasons. For doing the things that we are doing. Less godly reasons. And we're in it. For ourselves. Like Judas was. Are we. Using Jesus to get. What we really want that we think in the moment is better than Jesus. We're all susceptible to this. All of us are. Even in this story, friends, Judas wasn't the only one in that room getting on Mary's case while acting outwardly pious. I wish I could tell you that Peter and James and John and the other disciples, the real disciples of Jesus. I wish I could tell you that they had Mary's back and they defended her from uh, from Judas's barbs of condemnation. But that didn't happen. Matthew tells us about this story, and he gives us some information that John doesn't give us. And when the disciples saw it, when they saw what Mary was doing, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Now, I think Judas was the ringleader of all this. He got everybody stirred up. But, folks, it wasn't just Judas that was giving Mary a hard time. The others joined in. Now, I do think there are some differences between Judas and the eleven. Judas is a thief, a false disciple, and not a genuine believer. I think the eleven, I don't think that they're thieves. I think they had other motives. I think the eleven are probably cold-hearted pragmatists who totally missed the significance of this moment and the beauty of what Mary was doing. Bible says they were indignant. If you read Mark's account, Mark says they scolded her. What are you doing, Mary? Are you crazy? Here we are enjoying dinner, and you've got to break out this flask, something you should be saving for a death, and you are wasting it on Jesus. If you're going to get rid of that perfume, at least do some good with it, sell it so we can help some poor people. Come on, Mary. Get your head on straight. This is too over the top, too much, too extravagant. Folks, what we see in Scripture, in Scriptures like this one, is that even genuine disciples, uh, even you, even me, can go astray. We can lose focus. We can be just like Judas. How sad it is when a believer like Mary puts it all on the line for Jesus, sacrificing either their time or their money or their futures or their very lives for the sake of Of glorifying Jesus, and we join Judas in criticizing and shaking our heads in pious disapproval. How often do we say to others, you can't do this for Jesus, you can't invest this for the kingdom of God, you can't throw your life away like this? That's ridiculous. What a waste. Be practical. How often do we how often do we say that to ourselves when we sense God calling us to a greater level of commitment and devotion and service to him? I heard a story of a a girl who was at a Christian college and the chaplain of the college was talking about global missions. And the father confronted the chaplain of this institution. And what did the father do? Did he thank the chaplain? Did he show appreciation for the uh, to the chaplain for for holding up Jesus and the gospel as the supreme treasure? Was the father glad that the chaplain challenged these young people to world missions for the sake of Christ and and for the lost? No, he told the chaplain, I did not give eighty thousand dollars to this institution to have my daughter throw her life away. And friends, that is spectacularly pathetic. So I pray that God will give us here at Harbin's Church a greater sense and appreciation of the superior value of Christ, of the gospel, and of the kingdom of God. I pray that God will help us to have a heart like Mary. I I, I pray that for all of us. I pray that for myself. I fall so short of this. You have a very weak and flawed pastor when you see me sinning. Don't be shocked. I struggle too. I pray that God would help us to have the hearts of someone like C.T. Studd. Who lived in the late 19th and early 20th century. People thought Studd was crazy. His critics thought he was wasting his money and wasting his life pouring it down the drain of like Judas, thought he was wasting his life when he, when he gave up his status, his opportunity, his fortune. Gave up millions of dollars for what? So that he could pour out his life in places like China and India and Africa telling other people about Jesus. And despite the critics, Stud, in response, said, If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. If Jesus be God and died for me and died for me. Besides Jesus, Mary may have been the only one in that room who at least had an inkling of the significance of that hour. Certainly the disciples had no clue. But Mary seems to be getting something, even if it's just a hint Something that the, that the twelve disciples don't get. Mary anoints, Judas condemns, but Jesus loves it. Jesus commends, Jesus commends. And so you see in verse 7, the words of Jesus. Jesus said, leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. In Mark 14, verse 8, in the parallel account, Jesus says this, She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Folks, you don't prepare the body for burial until they're dead. Understand the significance of this. Mary is ministering to Jesus as if he's already dead. And Jesus allows it. He defends Mary's actions and he even commends her. Uh, Jesus, again, going back to Mark 14, verse 6, Jesus says, She has done a beautiful thing to me. The smell of that perfume filling the home was a fragrance that would eventually fill every house. Every house of mourning where a loved one had died would experience this. Not necessarily from a perfume as expensive as this, but this kind of smell was the smell of death that would touch every home and every family sooner or later. There's only one reason anyone ever dumped an entire flask of precious ointment on anyone's body at any time. I think everyone in that room recognized this, and that's why they're upset, and that's why they think this is such a waste. They just don't get it. Now, folks, I don't know how much Mary understood about everything that was going on and how much of a grasp she had of the full meaning of everything that was going to be unfolding during these last days of Jesus time on earth with them. Surely she did not understand as much as we understand now on this side of the cross. But there is one thing it seems like she understands before her was a dead man walking. And Mary demonstrates a far more intuitive grasp of what's happening than these disciples. And that's not surprising, given the fact given the fact that Mary is seen in the gospel of Luke as one who is sitting at the feet of Jesus, hanging on his every word. You remember the, the story in the gospel of Luke and Jesus is visiting with Mary and Martha and Lazarus and, and Martha is up and she's serving and and, and she's doing the, the cooking and the cleaning and all of that. And, and Mary's not even helping out. She's She's, she's she's not helping out at all. And, and Martha gets mad at Mary for doing this. What's Mary been doing the whole time? She's been sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to him, hanging on his every word. And once again, we find Mary treasuring Jesus more than other things. And, and in that situation, it, it's very interesting. In that situation, Mary is doing something wonderful in her relationship with Jesus. And once again, People jump on Mary about it. And once again, Jesus jumps in and defends Mary. And in that story, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says, she's doing the better thing. She's listening to me. And so it should not be shocking that Mary, who is so in tune with the words of Christ, who loves the words of Christ, who listens to Christ, who pays attention to Christ, she she may have more of an inkling of what's going on in that moment than the disciples do. Mary gets something that the disciples, the other disciples don't. Jesus, over and over again, told the disciples that the reason he came was to die. And over and over again, the twelve either missed it or they blatantly pushed back against Jesus. And I think Mary has been paying much closer attention to the words of Christ than the twelve were if Mary doesn't understand the fullness of all to come, it seems like she at least has an inkling. And she realizes that Jesus will soon be dead. They all just have a few more precious moments with him, And she will love and enjoy Jesus with everything she has. She will recognize and honor this moment and this death. It's important to help the poor. The Bible talks all over the place about the poor. Jesus cares about the poor. But here we have an issue of a priority. Jesus says, the poor you will always have here, but you won't always have me. My time is short. My hour is here. There will be plenty of opportunities, Judas, to take care of poor people, which I know you won't. But they're still going to be around for you to help. But in a few days, I'm gone. Mary gets that. You don't. And here's The irony. The disciples are, are like, hey, hey, we, we need this money for kingdom work. We need to we need to use this money to help the poor. But Mary, in anointing Jesus, was highlighting the cornerstone and the foundation of the gospel, which is Christ's death. Folks, without Christ's death, you could give them everything. You give the poor everything. You, you can meet all their physical needs. And you give them food to fatten their bellies for 70 years. And after that, they would drop dead and go to hell. Nobody is getting into the kingdom apart from Christ's death. That's why this is the priority. Jesus commends Mary because this act of love and devotion puts the fact of his death on display. It highlights it highlights it and prioritizes it above and beyond anything else, including caring for practical needs of the poor in that moment. The disciples have resisted this talk of Jesus' death from the very, very beginning. But the disciples are continuing their pattern a pattern of being very thick-headed about this issue. You remember the story of Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus talks about how he's going to suffer and die and all of this. And Peter gets angry and says, Lord, this is not going to happen to you. And Jesus rebukes Peter, says, get behind me, Satan. That idea of me not dying is satanic. For this reason, I have come into the world. Not not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. From the very beginning of John's Gospel, we, we are told that everything is inevitably leading to this death. We see this from the very first chapter <clears throat> when John the Baptist sees Jesus, and what does he say upon seeing Jesus? Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And John there is identifying uh, that Old Testament Passover Lamb, uh, those those lambs that were that whose throats were slits whose blood was shed, those lambs that experienced death, uh, give that, that gives us a picture of substitution. Those Old Testament animal sacrifices, they, they were a constant reminder that we as sinners deserve death, that we deserve God's judgment. And the only way to escape that judgment is to have a substitute die in our place. And, and of course, none of the Passover lambs in the Old Testament were sufficient to deal with sin. But their purpose was to point us to a greater lamb to come, to Jesus Christ. And John the Baptist in John chapter 1 is identifying Jesus with those Passover lambs. In the very beginning of this chapter, chapter 12, John reminds us that it's six days before the Passover. The the hour of Jesus' death was, was near. The Passover is coming. That time is coming when all of these animals would be slain and sacrificed. And At the same time, Jesus was going to give up his own life to put an end to sacrifice once and for all. Going back to John chapter 11, remember the words of the high priest Caiaphas, who says in chapter 11, verse 50, Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now, Caiaphas spoke something in that moment that was truer than he realized. Caiaphas did not realize how prophetic he was being with that statement. Caiaphas said it's either Jesus or us. And, of course, Caiaphas is speaking in merely pragmatic terms. Caiaphas is not thinking substitutionary atonement for sin. He's thinking, Jesus needs to die so the Romans won't kill us. And yet, he's being more prophetic than he realizes. Indeed, Jesus must die. Indeed, it is better for one man, Jesus, to die for his people, but for a much more significant reason. Because, folks, if Jesus doesn't die, we're all dead. I mean, all of us. You, me, Everybody, if Jesus doesn't die, we're all in hell right now. But thanks be to God, in his mercy, he deemed it better for one man, Jesus, to die, to suffer hell on the cross, so that all who trust in him should not perish in hell, but have life everlasting. The disciples won't fully grasp this until after the fact, after Jesus' death and resurrection. But I think what the disciples get in retrospect is, Mary begins to intuitively grasp in advance. And Jesus gives Mary a stunning commendation. In Mark 14, verse 9, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Mary here represents the ideal disciple who understands what matters most. With great soberness and weightiness, she looks ahead to the death of Jesus, which was supreme for her in that moment. Likewise, it should be supreme for us. With Mary had an inkling of, we folks have the full story. And therefore, how much more should the death of Christ and his cross be at the forefront of our minds, at the forefront of our hearts compared to Mary? We are to be a cross-centered, cross-shaped, cross-driven people. The cross reminds us that the wages of sin is death. As Jesus, that perfect Passover lamb, hung there dying, it reminds us that it really was we who deserved execution. The cross reminds us of the justice of God as, as the reason why God poured out His wrath on Jesus was not to punish His own sin. He had none. But our sin and the cross reminds us of the love of God. In the beginning of this message, I said, the more sacrificial the gift of the giver, the greater the expression of love that is towards the givee. and brothers and sisters, there was no sacrifice made that was greater than Jesus' sacrifice. That there's nothing more valuable than his very life. Nothing more costly than his precious blood. And therefore, there is no greater love that has ever been demonstrated to you or ever will be by anyone anywhere than the love of a father who offered up his perfect holy son so that all who believe in him will be forgiven of their sins and have eternal life. And so if you come here this morning unbelieving, I urge you, my friends, to consider Christ's death. Christ's death is not what Judas thought it was. It's not a waste. His blood was not poured down the drain for nothing. Come to Christ this morning. Receive him this morning. Turn from your rebellion against God and trust in his saving work on the cross. Let Jesus' death count for you so you don't have to die for your own sins in hell forever. Your cross-centered life begins with trusting in His sacrifice for sinners. Maybe you're here this morning already a believer and you feel awful. A sermon like that, this could do that to you. And you've considered the devotion of Mary and you've considered the treachery of Judas and the commendation of Jesus and what all this teaches about discipleship, and and you know that you fall so short of being the disciple that you should be. You know that. Because there are in your heart treasures that are competing with Jesus, and sometimes you feel more like Judas than, than Mary, to be honest. And you feel moved to repent of that, and you should. But you will never be able to move forward in freedom and confidence until you turn your eyes back to the cross. Because... Jesus' death on the cross is the reminder that you will not be cast aside by God and that your salvation is secure because it has already been purchased with with blood. And at the end, your salvation, your security, hinges not on your perfect performance. That's a pipe dream. But on His perfect performance. And therefore, the death of Jesus... Reminds you that your salvation rests on trusting him. Because Jesus paid it all. He even paid for those awful sins that are haunting you right now. Only in being a cross-centered disciple will you find peace. Because the gospel is not just for unbelievers. It is for weak, flawed, broken believers who have failed for the 10,000th time. Therefore, you will never become so advanced a Christian that you'll be able to move on from the cross into deeper things. There is nothing deeper than what God has done through Jesus Christ and the salvation and the redemption and securing of his people. Praise God for the love of God that he has shown you through Christ's death on the cross. Let's pray.